invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis 30, we'll be looking here in a moment in beginning at verse 25. We do have this week, like last week, a rather long passage, and so we are going to jump in without any further delay. Let's pray and ask God's guidance in understanding what he has written for us this morning. Word of God, send your spirit so that we might understand his written word, that we might be illuminated to understand what you have inspired, and that we would humbly bow to it, conforming our lives to what it says. Let us do this for the glory of Christ in whom we pray. Amen. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means, among many things, that to understand certain key events in this life, we've got to understand this book. And so let us look now to the Word of God. And as I often do with these longer passages, I will expound and uh, um, un un unwrap some of it as we go along and then at the end, come back and look at its main message. Verse 25 of Genesis chapter 30, uh, uh, page 30, I think it is, in the Pew Bible. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I... But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And so he said, uh, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages, so my honesty will answer for me Later, when you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if it's found with me, it shall be counted stolen. If you've been with us, I hope you're paying attention to the change that's taking place in Jacob, the sanctification that's occurring in this man. My honesty will answer for me later. Jacob of all people, the one whose name means deceiver, is now speaking about his honesty. And there is not even the slightest bit of irony. We saw last week how God uses circumstances to discipline us and chasten us. And that's what's happening in the life of Jacob. Jacob is fed up with all the lying, deceiving, cheating. But notice, he doesn't try to fix Laban. Jacob is not focused on the other person. Jacob is reforming Jacob. I cannot change my spouse. 
I cannot change my coworker. I cannot change my boss. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit in me that I can change me. And so it is with Jacob. He proposes an arrangement in which he cannot cheat. He says, look, it's for time for some honesty in this relationship, and let it begin with me. Now, what exactly has Jacob proposed? Well, rather than asking Laban for cash, he has asked to get paid in stock. Literally, livestock in this case. The idea is simple, as in any stock payment arrangement. My wealth will be tied to your wealth. If your flocks are devoured, my flocks will be devoured. If your flocks thrive, my flocks will thrive. Jacob is proposing that he be given a cut of the future earnings and company growth. It's a great incentive-based plan. And he's asking for a minority share. He's not being greedy. Striped goats and black sheep were less common. We still use the expression black sheep to refer to the unusual. There's this dark-colored wrangler that parks on the street right around the corner from my house. You know the wrangler, the off-road 4x4 vehicle? Spare tire on the back, cover on the spare tire. It says the black jeep of the family. Makes me laugh every time I go by it. That's kind of the point here. The black sheep are the less common ones. He's asking for a minority share. In fact, uh, uh, analysis of the normal you know, uh, heredity in these flocks, about 20% of the flock would meet the conditions Jacob's talking about. About 20% of the goats would have been striped or speckled or mottled, and about 20% of the sheep would have been black. He's not asking for even a 50-50 split with his father-in-law. And again, given the visual nature of this, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a proposal by which he cannot embezzle. He can't hide things in a Swiss bank account. Laban is going to be able to go through and check Jacob's honesty. Verse 34. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban a man not being sanctified by God, removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. You know, just as Elijah would one day pour 12 barrels of water on the altar, so as to make God's uh, 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 act all that much more glorious when it lit a fire. So here, that's what's going on. Laban thinks he's conning Jacob, but the glory of God will be that much more stunning in the end. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since, they, and since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. 
He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Okay, so what's going on here? If you've been with us, this is the second time that we have seen uh, 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 some kind of fertility superstition with these people. Remember Leah and Rachel fighting over the mandrake plants so that they might use them to get pregnant? And now we have here uh, Jacob peeling sticks so that the sheep and goats will bear the proper color offspring. How do we explain this? What's happening? Well, um, Let's start with this, and I, and I have taken a basic genetics class. Uh, this is not how heredity works, okay? This is not what's going on here. The goose that lays the golden egg was not looking at gold when she laid the egg, okay? That's just not the way it works. John Calvin, pretty smart guy, he argued that the striped sticks were merely the conduit of a miraculous intervention, just as God would later say to Moses, take your staff and do such and so. So it was in this situation that the striped sticks were simply the, the tool through which God worked a miracle. I suppose that's certainly possible, and I generally don't want to differ with John Calvin, but I don't really see anything in the text that supports this idea that God revealed this or told Jacob to do it this way. So I'm not sure. Alternatively, I've heard it argued that the sticks were nothing more than markers. They were organizational tools. Jacob has gained a superior understanding of heredity and genetics, and he's using it to his advantage, and he's simply using these sticks. He's putting these uh, members of the herd over by these sticks so he can keep track of who's where, what, when. He can look and see the striped sticks and, oh, those are the, the, the ones that are going to produce the striped offspring. Oh, they're over there by the black things. They're going to produce the black offspring. They're mere organizational tools. In this view, there's really not a miracle going on, nor is there any real superstition going on. And yet it doesn't seem to me that that actually fits the sense of the text. In this text, there really seems to be some kind of connection, more concrete cause and effect connection between the sticks and the births. So what is going on? Well, I think the best explanation, in my opinion, in my judgment, is to simply admit that what's happening here is what we see over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. And that is this. Man does what man does, and God does what God does. Man acts in foolishness and superstition and sin and silliness, and God acts in generosity and grace and blessing. That just as Rachel and Leah, despite their arguing over the mandrakes, when they do have the children, they turn around and they bless God and thank God for them, so we're going to see that Jacob is going to attribute his flocks not to his superstition, but to his God. And I think probably what's going on here is that Jacob simply thinks this is how God works. This is the way God does things. So I'm going to do it. Whatever the correct explanation, the point is clear. 
God comes through for Jacob. God provides uh, generously for this man. Verse 31. Now Jacob heard, remember, Laban has put a three days uh, uh, journey between them. So now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. Gained all this wealth. Uh, so the last verse of the last chapter listed his wealth, and now the sons are talking about how rich Jacob is. And we need to note we are, he is suddenly, uh, not suddenly, and that's my whole point here, he is now a very wealthy man, and that does not happen suddenly. While it might be that God intervened, that the, the flocks produced a higher percentage of striped goats and black sheep, there is no evidence that there was excessive twinning, or that all of a sudden they were giving birth to three and four young per year. That even with God's hand upon the tiller, this still took time. And my point is that he, there's been a significant passage of time. Many breeding seasons have to occur for this kind of wealth to be built up. Verse 2. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field. Get a little privacy here. Called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but... The God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. <clears throat> then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Notice that Jacob does not credit himself or his superstition. He credits God. Jacob's burgeoning wealth was a testimony to God's faithfulness. And his wives take note. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. This is actually an amazing paragraph. And while we don't know exactly how much time has passed since Laban agreed to the terms that Jacob set to get a share of the wealth, it has been a while. And in that time, Jacob has acted honestly and worked diligently. He's a changed man. 
No longer is he trying to gain through schemes. And his wives, notice even Leah, who once schemed with Laban against Jacob, even Leah now attests to Jacob's rightness and Laban's wrongness. They see the faithful nature of Jacob's God. And they say, follow him, trust him. And now they look back upon the way their father treated them, and they see that they were to their father mere property. He did not give them as brides with a bridal price. Rather, he treated them as foreigners. He sold them as slaves, not as daughters. He sold them as property, not as people. For all the strife that there has been in Jacob's house, and there has been a lot of strife, these women find in the house of Jacob something different from what they grew up with in the house of their father. They see in Jacob a difference, and they're drawn to it. And this is what sanctification does, even when it is painfully slow. It produces in us a difference that others see. And it glorifies the God at work in us. By the way, we need to note the women's faith in the true God. They rally around Jacob's plan to follow the God of Abraham. The faith of Leah and Rachel is important because what's about to come up in the text isn't going to make any sense unless we understand that they believe in the true God. Rachel trusts and wants to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Let's keep that in the back of our heads. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. The presence of camels in the Bible has been the source of much scholarly mocking of the Bible. Um, camels didn't exist back then in that place. On that topic, we cut some weeks back, we had a bulletin insert, and I've put copies of it on the table in the uh, lobby. If you didn't, weren't here that Sunday, you want to go back and consider the presence of camels here in the Bible. Verse 18, he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Remember I said the faith of Rachel is important to the story? So we have to ask ourselves, why would Rachel profess faith in Jacob's God at one moment, and then within a few hours, turn right around and steal her father's idols. Is this nostalgia? Is she hedging her bets just in case Jacob's God doesn't come through? Uh, neither of those. We'll see in a moment what's really going on. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. The old Jacob used trickery to get what was not his. This Jacob uses trickery only to take what is his. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Laban pursued in verse 23. Now he overtakes. These are military terms. Moses is 
purposefully, intentionally using uh, martial language here. Um, even what then comes next with Laban pitching his tents in the hill country is not the language that's ordinarily used of nomads, but of soldiers on campaign. Moses is, in the Hebrew it comes through more clear, Moses is building some tension in the story. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? More militaristic language. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Listen, I'm a great father-in-law. I ought to throw you a wonderful going-away party. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters? Laban is such a con man. And we are to see him that way. Now, you have done foolishly. Notice the change. Why didn't you let me kiss my sons and daughters? And now the threat. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would have taken my daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Remember the whole thing about the striped goats and the black sheep and all the visual accountability? Here's why we were told all of that. Jacob is now standing on his honesty. He is saying to Laban, go ahead, search the place. You don't need a search warrant. I give you permission. Look at everything. Overturn every stone. Search every knapsack. And by the way, if you find your gods, the one in possession of them will die. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them, the gods, And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And Rachel said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. I always thought it was odd that Rachel was atop a camel when camp was set up. You get on your camel after you've broken camp to move to the next place. You're on your camel before you set up camp, but you don't ride your camel around the camp. Perhaps some of you are more astute readers than I was. There's actually no mention of a camel, only of a camel's saddle. The camel's saddle is on the ground. She hid the gods in there. Her dad's looking for them, and she quickly goes and sits on the saddle that is on the ground so as to hide the gods. And then what happens? Why is she sitting down? How is she going to explain this to her dad? 
And at this point, my wife will finish the rest of the sermon. No, my discomfort and awkwardness aside, we will go where the scripture goes. Rachel is sitting on the camel's saddle for relief from menstrual cramping, whether real or feigned, and I think the story suggests it's the latter, that she's faking this. Rachel has resorted to the one ploy that no sane man would touch with a 10-foot pole, not even her father. Now, I've coached a lot of girls' sports. When the mother of a 7th grader starts a sentence, Jane can't play today, she's not feeling well, she's just stop. I don't need to hear another word. Jane can't play today. Don't go any further, please, please, please don't say anything more. It's 4,000 years later, and no man has yet devised a counter to this move. And I would say, dear women, have pity on us and use your power only for good. Why does Rachel play the way of women card, the it's that time of the month gambit? Well, she's hiding the gods for which her father is searching. And so now we have to answer that question. Why did she take them? Why does she have these household gods? Has she taken them out of some childhood nostalgia? You know, this is the religion I grew up with. These are the gods that I had in my house when I was a kid. Did she say to Jacob, let's follow your god? But then she hedged and thought, well, maybe just in case I should grab the other gods. On the contrary, this is not a picture of Rachel waffling in her faith. This is a picture of Rachel demonstrating her utter contempt for both her father and his gods. While the stolen figurines may have some monetary or material value for the gold they contain, and that was probably the justification in her head for taking them, Dad has ripped us off. It's only appropriate that I get back some of that. But they have no value to her as gods. If they did, she would not be sitting on them. This basically argues the account here is included so far as I can tell for one reason. And that is to demonstrate what she really thinks of these gods. She values them roughly as one might a used sanitary napkin. And this is, in the scriptures, the lowest most debased, most contemptible comparison the scriptures can find. When Isaiah claims that, the, that Israel's uh, faithless good works are as filthy rags, that is this. It literally means use menstrual cloths. Rachel's done with her father. She's done with him and with his worthless gods. And while she is saying outwardly, sorry, daddy, I can't get up and give you a hug, Inwardly, she's thinking, and oh, by the way, I'm sitting on your gods. And so far as I can see, the only reason Moses includes this was for the sake of those listening in the wilderness then and now. Moses is saying, folks, if your god can be godnapped, it's no god at all. If your god can be stolen and hidden and sat upon, it's not a god. Dear Israel, if you have carried a god out of Egypt with you, is that a god? Are you tempted to steal a Moabite goddess and worship her? If she can be stolen, she's not a god. 
The God who provided for Jacob despite Laban's dishonesty, that's a God, the God. The God who intervened in a dream to stop Laban from hurting Jacob, that's a God. But Israel, if your God needs you to find them, if he can be lost, it's not a God. And what does that mean to us, dear Shore Harvest? Money, which vanishes when a bank collapses, cannot be a God. Don't rely on it. Don't work for it. Don't give your life to it. A political candidate whose power can be thwarted by a stolen election? Not a God. Not a savior. Not the hope of the country. And certainly should not be your hope. We've got to stop relying on things that are not reliable. A husband who walks out or a wife who cheats. These are not your hope for true and lasting peace. One lesson of this story is that Jacob's God has overcome, and we're going to, it's going to dovetail to the later sermon, it's kind of the lesson of the story, Jacob's God has overcome every obstacle to bless Jacob, while Laban's gods are stolen and defiled by a menstruating woman. Verse 36. After Laban's almost thorough search turned up nothing, Jacob lets him have it. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before me and my kinsmen and your kinsmen that we may decide that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. Uh, uh, what was uh, torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From your, my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or by night. There I was by day. The heat consumed me in the night and, cold, and the cold by night. And my sleep f- fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Now look where he goes. You're looking for your gods, Laban? That's ironic. Let me show you what a real god looks like. If the god of my father, the god of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob's spiritual growth may have been painfully slow, but wow, is this a man on fire for the true God. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, you're asking me to show you what's mine? The daughters are mine. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. Laban has conveniently forgotten the deals he made to sell his daughters and to share the company profits with Jacob. But what can I do this day for these my daughters for, or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. The moment is heating up. Jacob has just yelled at his father-in-law, the senior uh, elder of the clan. <clears throat> and Laban says, you want to know what's mine? It's all mine. You'd have none of this if not for me. And as the tension rises, that militaristic language with which Moses introduced this scene needs to be in the back of our heads. It's about to go down. 
war is about to break out. And in the heat of the moment, for whichever reason, perhaps Laban, in these last 20 years where there's been that three days journey between him and Jacob, perhaps Laban didn't really realize how wealthy and how powerful Jacob had become. But whatever the situation, Laban realizes he can't win and he backs down. But he's got to find a way to save face. And he says, well, I'd like to give a gift. What can I do for my daughters and their children? Here's my gift to you all. We're not going to go to war. We're going to make a covenant. I'm that generous that I'm not going to kill you and your household. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. I've said it several times the last few weeks, meals seal deals. Every time there's a covenant in the Bible, there's a covenant meal. And it is a reminder to us that one of the things we do at the Lord's table is renew the covenant, or he renews with us his covenant. <clears throat> Laban called the, the stone heap uh, Jegar uh, uh, Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And at this point, our narrator uses the two different languages of the men to show the divide between them. Uh, 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 Laban is speaking Aramaic. Jacob has returned to his native Hebrew. They are going their separate ways. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid <clears throat> and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Looks like Laban is suddenly trying to play the part of the doting father. I suspect he, this is his last chance to burnish his reputation, and he's trying to do so. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Earlier, Laban was all worked up because his household gods had been stolen, but here he seems to be speaking like a monotheist. He makes reference to God, <clears throat> appears to be singular, and in my translation, it's capitalized. So what's going on? Well, I think part of it is the fault of the translator. So first of all, the biblical languages don't have anything equivalent to capitalization. <clears throat> so God as a capital G and God with a lowercase g look exactly the same in biblical Hebrew. There's no distinction between them. It's got to be judged based on the context. So, um, so when, the, when the translator chose to make a capital G, they kind of skewed us to think about the true God. I don't think Laban's thinking about the true God here. Also, again in Hebrew, and this is not the translator's fault, this is just the reality of linguistic differences. In Hebrew, the word for judge is spelled in such a way that it assumes a plural subject. In other words, it's not one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of Terah, that God judge between us. But rather, Laban is speaking as though there are plural gods going to judge. It's the God of Abraham judge, and the God of Nahor can judge, 
and the God of Terah can judge. And then there's one more complexity. The Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is a plural word even when it's used as the singular true God. So therefore, it's totally possible that Laban is speaking of gods in the plural. The gods, lowercase g with an s, of Abraham. The gods, lowercase g with an s, of Nahor, and the gods of Terah, judge between us. Laban is a pagan. That's why he was looking for his household gods. You know, Rebecca has lost touch with her family back up there in Haran, Paddan Aram. And she sent her beloved son Jacob there to find a good Christian girl to marry. What's really happened is Jacob marries a couple of girls from up there and they become Christians. It's worth noting that the wives of Jacob's sons, we aren't told where they come from, but never again does this clan go back to Haran to find wives for their boys was once a family of faith, has ceased to be so. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Even pagans loved their families. Then Laban departed and returned home. May the God whose word this is add his blessing to our understanding and his grace to our obedience. If God is good, why does evil exist? If God is sovereign and good, why do natural disasters claim 20, 30, 40,000 lives in one fell swoop? And you might say, well, God allows nature to run its course, and I suppose, but that doesn't explain horrifying events that were directed by God, as recorded in God's Bible. God instructed Joshua to level, utterly destroy entire villages, killing every man, woman, and child. Those were not events that were allowed by God. They were events commanded by God. Why does that happen? Meredith Klein, a leading theological thinker of the second half of the last century, He talked about these events in one of the most helpful ways I have yet encountered. Dr. Klein would speak of intrusion ethics. Intrusion ethics. By that phrase, Dr. Klein meant that most of the time, the wickedness of this world appears to go unpunished because in this life and in this world, there is something called common grace. That general goodness that God shows to all people. God teaches that he sends the rain to water the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. Wicked people grow wealthy. They have nice homes. They live comfortable lives. Thus, the wicked appear to go unpunished. And so it is that God seems not actually to judge wrongdoers. And yet at certain times in history, God superimposes his justice on this world in a very bald way. That in, you know, in the acts of Canaanite genocide that are recorded in the book of Joshua, 
we see revealed God's holy standard. God's holiness and justice intrude into our world at these times. And in them we catch a glimpse of the final judgment which may evade some in this life, but which no one avoids in the next life. If God is good, why did he direct Joshua to kill even women and children? Because God is also holy. And he is just. One day, women and children will be sent to hell. And if we don't understand that, we're going to condemn even more to that. Hell is not just for Hitler, Stalin, and some far-left Democrats. Go ahead, tell me you've never thought that way. Come on. No, the wrath of God is for all who have not believed in Jesus, his son. And to remind us of that, to motivate us, to warn us, and yes, to put the fear of God into us, there are periods during which God's justice comes out of the future and invades our world in shocking, eye-opening ways. Intrusion ethics. But this sermon isn't about that. This sermon isn't about God's justice, but about his grace. It's not about his wrath, but about his blessing. The sermon could be said to be about not intrusion ethics, but intrusion blessings. I've heard, as I imagine you have also, I've heard perhaps a thousand times, if God is good, then why? And fill in the blank with whatever shocking event is most recent. If God is good, why do banks fail and people lose their savings? If God is good, why are there massive earthquakes and tens of thousands die? But the goodness of God is not the principal characteristic, it's not the central characteristic, it's not the emphatic attribute of God in the Bible. Rather, the Bible emphasizes God's holiness. And there are a lot of ways to demonstrate that fact, but for the sake of time, we had a long text, let's just use this one. Let me just use this one to convince you that his holiness is central. What is the eternal refrain, eternal refrain of the four living creatures and the 24 elders gathered around the throne of the Almighty? Good, good, good is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. No? Kind, kind, kind is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Not that one either, is it? Surely it's this one. Love, love, love. No. The eternal refrain at the foot of the throne of the Almighty is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's the attribute of God that will be declared for all of eternity. He is and if your understanding of God does not begin and end with his holiness, then it is not a biblical understanding. And when we understand that, all of a sudden our questions change. The destruction of a village in Canaan 
actually fits. God hates sin. And sinners disgust him. That they are wiped out. That those whom he gave life would defy him and he takes their life away? That makes a lot of sense in light of the holiness of God. Our questions have to change. The question is no longer, why do bad things happen? Bad things in our judgment. Why do those things happen? The question all of a sudden becomes, how does anyone avoid it? In light of the holiness of God, how does a man like Jacob prosper? It was God's holiness that was in display when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. It was God's holiness that was being symbolized when the people were kept from going up on Mount Horeb. It was God's holiness that was portrayed by the fence around the tent of meeting. It was God's holiness that killed Uzzah and drove Isaiah to his face in the temple. It is the holiness of God that needs to be the driving force of our understanding of him. And now we have to ask ourselves, if God is holy, how on earth can a guy like Jacob be divinely blessed? How can Jacob be the recipient of such largest and uh, uh, beneficence? Our culture mocks the idea that God would strike anyone dead. Those of us who know him ought to marvel at the reality that he doesn't strike anyone and everyone dead. We ought to be aghast at that reality that we are allowed to continue to live and sometimes even flourish and thrive and prosper. And this is why I took a few minutes to explain Dr. Klein's intrusion ethics, because I want to modify that. I want to spin it around and talk about intrusion blessing. Or said another way, I want to preach the prosperity gospel. And before the elders storm the platform and usher me out, as they would be justified in doing, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel the way the world, the way the, the false church has twisted it, but the true gospel is good news of prosperity. It is a hope of abundance. It is a promise that we will prosper. See, the prosperity of this gospel Oh, sorry, this prosperity of the gospel of this world is this, the, the prosperity gospel of mankind. It takes the promises of God, it takes them out of context, it rips them apart, it twists them around, and it says, God wants you to live your best life now. Jesus says, I came to that they may have life and have it abundantly. And the prosperity gospel says, buy that car, live in that house. That's what God wanted for you. The prosperity gospel, which is so prevalent in American Christianity, and which we are sadly exporting to the rest of the world, it ignores this reality. That 11 of the 12 apostles died horrible martyrs' deaths, and the 12th one lived in exile. Not one of them lived abundantly in this life. Those closest to Jesus who followed him literally daily did not believe in a best life now, paradigm. They died not in wealth, but in faith, not living abundantly, but believing that abundance awaited them. Why? Because they knew the story of Jacob. 
Just as the destruction of the villages in the book of Joshua uh, teaches us about God's justice and righteousness and holiness, so the story of Jacob teaches us about God's grace and blessing and kindness to those who are his. It's here as an illustration for what lies ahead for those who cling to Jesus. We must not forget that judgment is looming out there, and it is real, but we must also remember that for those who believe, for those who hope in Jesus, blessing looms out there, and it is equally real. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And so, as God pulls the the his judgment from the future into the present to remind us of its reality, so he has pulled his blessing out of the future into Jacob's present to remind us of its reality. If the threat of God is made real and tangible in the destruction of some, that's Klein's intrusion ethics, then the promise of God is made real and tangible in the blessing of Jacob. Jacob suffers a great deal, but in that suffering, he turns toward God, to God, not away from him. He embraces more tightly the God of his father and grandfather and hopes in him, counts on him. And for that, he is rewarded. And like this life, Jacob's wait is a long one. After studying this text, I... You know, like many, like most, I think I, I read this initially to believe Jacob was inherent for 20 years. I'm now quite convinced he was there for 40 years. There, the insert in the bulletin this morning kind of lays out that argument. If you're interested in those sorts of things, chronology, that kind of stuff, take a look at that later this afternoon. It might be some interesting, interesting reading. But he was there for 40 years. And even the most senior among us have to go, yeah, that's a long time. That's a long time. And he spends those 40 years being swindled and deceived and mistreated. Treated as a hired hand, not as a son-in-law. Treated, his wives treated as property, not as people. But during that time, if Jacob's faith had been merely an outward religion, merely the thing he did on Sunday morning, he would have walked away from his God. We see the opposite happening. We see him clinging more closely to his God, hoping in his God, trusting in his God, believing his God, obeying his God. He doesn't say, I outwitted you or I outworked you. He makes no claims of being a self-made man. No, he says, the God of Abraham came through for me. Look back at 3138. Go back up to 3138 and some of the verses that come after it. These 20 years I have been with you. And I mentioned the timing thing. Notice he says these 20 years, and then later he says these 20 years that I was in your house. That's kind of in a nutshell where we get the 40 from. But keep moving here. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I was a good shepherd. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. I didn't live the high life. I didn't run up my expense account. What was torn by wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Honesty, once a weakness for Jacob, now a strength. I did not lie to you about the losses that happened or make excuses for them. I simply paid them. 
from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. By night, there I was by day; the heat consumed me, and by and the cold by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. I did not. He's saying here, I didn't acquire this stuff by scheming or by a ruse, but by honest hard work. Jacob is a changed man. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Notice what Jacob says now. He doesn't say, listen, but here's what I did, or here's how I got my share, or here's how I took care of myself. Look at verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. You know, the Jews who followed Jesus, and they were all Jews, Peter, John, Thomas, Andrew, James, etc., they were all Jews. The Jews who followed Jesus, they understood that God's promises were always bigger than just what they had seen on the outside. Canaan, the promised land, was never the end-all and be-all of God's promises. It was but a down payment. They understood that in the book of Joshua, the conquest was successful because they trusted God and God honored his word to them. And they understood that that was only supposed to be the first little bit of God retaking all of creation. It's why they scattered all over the earth. It's why Thomas went to India with the gospel. I had a seminary professor from India whose hometown traces its Christianity not to an 18th or 19th century Western missionary, but back to Thomas himself. Because they understood that all the earth is the Lord's. And all the people are to be his. And the gospel is to go everywhere. And so it was that they went everywhere. And they understood the story of Joshua. Uh, that, that, that what happened there was proof that God would be faithful to his word. So God's provision for his people is not... Canaan, the promised land. It's China and India, Switzerland and Zambia, New Zealand, Canada, the Caribbean, Colombia, and every other place on earth. So it was with the wealth of Jacob. He trusted God. He obeyed God. He humbled himself, learned the lessons of sanctification's mirror. He kept his head down and did what he was supposed to do. And in him, God makes a demonstration of the prosperity of the gospel. He is really well off. He is rich by every ancient standard. He has sheep aplenty, wool to make any tent he wants to make and for all the clothes he could possibly wear. He has lambs for every special meal he wants to, every party he wants to throw. He has goats for milk and meat. He has camels, the ultimate utility vehicle back then. He had servants galore. He has families spilling out everywhere. You know, we only remember the 12 named sons, and maybe some of us remember Dinah. But Genesis 45 tells us he had 33 children. The picture of Jacob, the one that we see here and we will see more fully in the weeks to come, is a picture of an incredibly wealthy and powerful man. He's grown so wealthy and so powerful while he's been living three days' journey from Laban that Laban 
backs down from the threat of attack. In other words, Jacob's wealth has provided him what most of us want out of wealth, a sense of security. A sense of security. Jacob gets it. He is secure because of his wealth. He's secure because of God. But God works through his wealth to secure him. Just as the promised land was a picture of God's larger plans, so too the wealth of Jacob is a foretaste of the greater glory God bestows on those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we remember it's in the book of Genesis that God reveals to us that humanity was uh, created to be caretakers over, but also beneficiaries of this good earth. We lost that by sinning. But the restoration of that good life, the prosperity we long for, it comes through faith. And it's a faith that's manifest in obedience. And so just as the conquest of Canaan would be merely God's down payment on the land that was going to be all the earth, so the wealth of Jacob, which exceeds you know, any name-it-and-claim-it scheme of today, the wealth of Jacob is not a picture of what you and I should pursue in this life necessarily, but it is given to Jacob so that we can see what God is going to provide for those who are faithful for those who await him and cling to him as Jacob did. The prosperity gospel is usually preached is no gospel. Just as a God which can be godnapped is no God, so a gospel which vanishes when a bank fails is no gospel. But the Bible does teach a prosperity gospel. It does teach that you will have wealth and comfort and abundance and security. And in the life of Jacob... We see the future blessing of God intruding into this world and giving us a little glimpse of what awaits all those who will cling to Jesus Christ by faith. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us this picture of your generosity, your goodness to people who hope in you. And in this picture, renew our hope in you. If we have waffled this week, if we have wavered, if we have doubted, let the hope of security, of abundance, of goodness, of pleasure, of wealth be an encouragement to us today. That we would cling to you during the hard times as Jacob did for 40 years. And that in so doing, we would secure by your good hand, by your kindness, by your faithfulness, all that you created us to have. All the goodness, all the blessing, all the wealth that is yours, that will be inherited by Jesus Christ and belongs to those who are joint heirs with him. We pray this in his name. Amen.